Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. I lived for five years. My wife and I lived for five years in, uh, in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I'm a hockey fan, and uh, the Raleigh-Durham area is home to the Hurricanes. Uh, and this week, we're seeing why they named their hockey team the Hurricanes, um, because of Hurricane Florence. I've been texting with a lot of friends in North Carolina and South Carolina over the last several days um, as they float about in their boats. Um, trying to avoid being flooded. Um, and, and the whole uh, news cycle of, of a hurricane has been, has been before us and all the catastrophe and uh, the tragic situations that come from it is definitely not something to be taken lightly. Um, but I think as we see these types of events happen, and, and our country especially really likes to, to, uh, to focus in on uh, heroic deeds in the midst of uh, you know, dire situations. And so we, we love to hear and to tell and to um, uh, propagate the stories of selfless heroes, you know, the guys who get in their boat and for, you know, 27 hours straight go house to house and apartment to apartment and building to building to pull people out of the third floor and float them to safety somewhere. And uh, the, the story of people who go and this one really tugs at our hearts and rescues like the animals left behind, like what's up with America, like we're so, we're so concerned about the animals, right, which is great, but let's concern ourselves even more so with the humans, um, and so this, this week, if, if it has been for you, it, I, it, I know it has been for me, just paying attention to uh, the, the, the tendency of our hearts to, to elevate and to even, uh, you know, want to emulate and, or, or even maybe consider and fall short of the fact that, man, I've never been a hero like that, and to see the heroic deeds of other people. And ultimately, it comes down to a, a selfish society which promotes and lives and breeds individualism, uh, seeing something that is so other than that it strikes us. Wait a minute. Somebody thought of someone else first. Somebody considered another person's safety over their own. Wait a minute. Somebody was willing to go without sleep for days in order to keep being a part of the rescue. 
uh, mission of saving other lives. And it's striking to us because so uh, little of our, our basic narrative in our culture tells us to live selflessly. Most of our narrative is about the self, is about the individual, is about the, the authority and the autonomy and the value of the self, and so often we push down the value of others. Um, yet we live with this conflict, right, where we see that there's value there, but the deeper values, the more repeated values, the loud, louder values of our culture uh, pull us away from that kind of a life. And so what we see in Christ is something that is so profound, uh, that is unmatched in all of human history, uh, and that is not just simply a human being heroic and rescuing others, but in fact, the very story of God himself who's existed for all time and eternity past, lowering himself to the point of humanity in order to provide rescue for those who are dying. Right? That is the profound reality that we find in Philippians 2, one of the most beautiful passages that you'll ever read in Scripture. Um, and it's what leads us into this third value. So this series called Distinctly Us is all about uh, just talking about what we value as a church at, at Stonehouse here. Um, and as we talk about these values, we're trying to articulate uh, what it is that we as a church, as a people, are trying to express in our culture, okay, in the feels, right? Like, what does it feel like to be here, right? What is the atmosphere that we hope to produce? Not simply what do we believe, but what does what we believe affect what we do? How does it position us uniquely as a people in a particular time, in a particular place for a particular purpose, right? That particular time is now, that particular place is St. Pete, that particular purpose is the glory of Jesus um, and not the glory of ourselves. Um, and so as we talk about these values, we're trying to distinguish every single week that we're not over here throwing mud at anybody who wouldn't express these values, right? We're not like beating our chests in pride saying, ha ha, look at us, we're really, really good. Uh, in fact, a lot of these values are not existent, they're hopeful, Right? They're things that we might have a glimmer of here and there, but really if we, if we fully look at them, we're going to go, oh man, that's not my experience. Right? Like, I, I hope that that's something. It's an aspiration. It's something we want to move toward. It's something that might exist uh, in part, but we definitely aren't experiencing the fullness of it. And so we're not throwing mud. We're just simply trying to gain unity together around these things to say, what, what are we pursuing together? What are we running after? If Jesus is who he is, like week one said, the gospel, if the scriptures say what they say, like week two said, that God's word is valued among us, then what does that push us toward? And we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at that reality. Uh, and so our first value was the gospel. Uh, we value the gospel over religion. And we're stating our values in kind of a mathematics uh, way, just so that they're memorable. Okay? I want you to feel these and to, to recollect them. Right? And so the simplicity of just stating two things, one over and above the other, is to help us just continue to remember them. Right? So we value the gospel over religion. Our second value that we talked about last week is that we value God's word over worldly wisdom. And then our third value looks like this, that we value others over self. Right? And so it's stated in a way that kind of looks mathematic. And we're saying the comparison because it helps to enhance the value. Right? If we just simply say the value, that's good. But if we say what the value is better than, then that's even better. 
right? It kind of puts a, a greater light on what the value is when we see the anti value. So that's why we're stating that opposite thing. And so this value, the week three, uh, or the value number three would be stated in this way, uh, that we would say we value others as more significant than ourselves. And so the statement is just a little bit different than that mathematical equation-looking thing. Um, but we value others as more significant than ourselves. And this is basically a restating of Philippians 2, 3, and 4, right? which was in the passage that we, that we just read. So Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see it there? It's as clear as day. Count others as more significant than yourself. We want to value that, and we're going to dig into that reality this morning. So let's pray before we jump in, because I need a crazy amount of help this morning, and you might need a little too. So here we go. God, thank you uh, for the freedom and opportunity to be in this place um, we are grateful that uh, you have brought us to and through, um, to this place and through the things in our lives uh, to allow us to be here. And whether we are in a place of full belief, where we look at Jesus and worship him as God and seek to pull the truth of the gospel into our everyday life, or if we're skeptical about Jesus and, and, and his claims and who he is, or, or maybe if we're even fearful, we're fearful about looking at the Bible or, or being in a church. Uh, God, wherever we find ourselves today, I pray that uh, the, the reality of the passage that we just read, that, that we look at today in Philippians, um, the, the truth of God coming down, that that would just be utterly precious to us. Um, that Jesus and his lowering of himself um, would lower us. Uh, because, God, we have zero hope in this culture and in our own selves to value others over ourselves. It's just, it's not normal. And it's not taught and it's, it's not seen very often. We, we need a glimpse of something so much bigger than, than what we've seen in this life. And so, God, we pray, please open your word to us and open us to your word. Um, that we might be both confronted by and comforted with the truth of Jesus, uh, that it would level us down low and then lift us up high. Because, God, we are not a selfless people. That is just simply true. And we need your grace if we are ever to have hope of living collectively as a people who value others as more significant than ourselves. God, it is an aspiration, a hope of this church that that would be a reality. And the only way to that reality is if Jesus drives us there. And so we ask for your mercy this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to walk through a little bit of this Philippians 2 passage. And we're going to kind of draw out this others over self uh, reality by applying it in, in three different ways. And I hope I can walk us through this without losing ourselves. So valuing others as more significant than ourselves would, have, would find application in these three ways. That, that first, we would see that the interests of others would be elevated above our own interests. 
okay? And then number two, that the consideration of others, in particular others who are not like me, okay? That the consideration of others would be valued above the comfort or, or being comforted by those who are like me, okay? Considering others who are not like me as more valuable than those who are like me, okay? Which is a stretch for us to be sure. And then finally expressing in a third way that we would value investment in others over the preservation of self, okay? Do you see how difficult this day is? This is intense, and I'm, I'm literally already shaking because Jesus, in his grace, as he kindly does to preachers, he so graciously brought these things right to my face all week long. And I tremble to think of how selfish I am. I weep at the thought of how long I've journeyed with Jesus and how totally concerned with the self I remain. It is gut-wrenching, but there's hope in the confrontation because Jesus is so much more than we could ever imagine as we look at these realities. So we want to value the interests of others over our own interests. We want to value and consider others more than we consider those who are like us, and we want to value investment in others over preservation of self and so as we look at this first reality, the interests of others being above my own interests, Philippians 2, 5, and 7 guides us in this direction. And it guides us in this direction by putting before us a greater example. And that is the example of Jesus Christ. So he is more than the first responder risking his life to save others from a flood, right? He is the greater example of this selflessness. So verse 5, 6, and 7 say this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now this reality of what Christ has done is staggering. And it's even more so when we consider the propensity of us as humans and how we are prone to look at our own position, right? Because as mere humans, we often thrust ourselves into the position of God, do we not? Right? We talk about all the time the, the first temptation that you and I would have fall prey to just like our first parents did, that that first temptation was Satan coming and saying, don't you think you should be able to determine right and wrong for yourself? Don't you think that you should be the ultimate measure of what is wisdom? Why would God hold that back from you? And Adam and Eve said, yeah, why would he? What a jerk. I'm pretty smart. Look at me. I'm more beautiful than all the things around me, right? The plants have their glory. The animals have their glory, but I'm a human. Man, I deserve to have the ability to decide for myself. I deserve that God-like 
position, right? And we walk through life doing this on a regular basis. We think often that we know better than God, right? We consider regularly that we would have chosen differently if it were up to us as God, and that things, therefore, would probably be in a better state. And we might not do this on a global scale, but we do this at least on a micro level with our own life, do we not? If God would have just let blah happen, then I blank, right? We just think he was mean, he withheld something, there was cruelty there, why didn't I get that door opened, why was it closed instead, why did he let that happen, right? Like all these things, and we, we start to insert ourselves into the idea of Godhood, even though we are just simply humans, or at least we would think we'd be more fair or that we'd stop evil, you know, if it were up to us. Dang it. God seems unwilling to do that. We often, as humans, thrust ourselves into this place. We grasp regularly at the concept of Godhood. We are quick to do that, but we are very slow to consider our humanity, right? We're slow to consider that we are limited, that we are weak, that we're frail, that we don't have all wisdom and all knowledge, we're slow to admit these things, right? It often takes pain or sickness or, or someone's death around us or a tragedy of some sort for us to finally realize, oh my goodness, I, I don't have power like I thought I had, right? I don't have the ability to just self-will things into existence. Like, I, I have limits, I have frailty, and we're very slow to consider that reality, and so we as humans struggle to see ourselves as humans. <laughs> it's been our experience from day one to be weak, to need help, right? You didn't change your own diapers, yo. Like, since then, you've always needed your diapers changed in metaphorical ways. Like, this is the experience of being human, and yet still we reject the idea of being mere humans. We want godness instead. But God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in existence from all time, eternity past, right? Clarity about Christianity. Jesus didn't start to exist. Jesus has always existed. He never knew limit. He always knew glory. The abundant worship of all of the angels was his, right? The fellowship of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was his. Perfect communion, no sin, no barriers, no lack, all light, no darkness, nothing hidden, nothing unknown, nothing mysterious, nothing unreachable. This was Christ's experience from eternity past. And what did Jesus do who knew and experienced and lived with all of these things in his reality? What did he do? He considered being human. A thing that we can barely grasp. That he took on himself the reality of humanity. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 6 says. Meaning this. Jesus didn't sit in heaven and hear God's plan for salvation for fallen sinners and think to himself, well, I mean, I really have a right to this godness. 
I'm God, I should just be God. I have the right to claim this privilege. I have the right to lay hold of and to enjoy forever this perfection. Jesus didn't do that, right? Jesus didn't consider that he was due something and demand that he hold on to all of that splendor and all of that glory. What did he do? Instead, he considered, knowing full well the reality of human beings, he considered, I will set aside the glory and I will take on the pain. I will set aside what I'm rightfully due, a perfect existence in sinless reality, and I will walk willingly through the curtain of heaven, place my feet on this fractured planet, and surround myself intentionally, deliberately, and for all of my life with messy, broken, sinful, limited, little humans who would rather be God than human, but I would rather be human than God. Paul says, the only possible way for you to live with others as better than yourself is for you to take on the mind of Jesus. That he was God and had the right to it forever and willingly laid it down so that he could come and save you, so that he could come and rescue you. And so we, in Christ, are to have this mind among ourselves, that we value the interests of others over our own interests. Now there's just a small point of clarity. Verse 4 says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay? Okay, so this is not, you must love thyself before you love others. Okay? The way the world puts that is as if no one knows how to love themselves, and they need to figure out how to love themselves before they can love others. Listen, the day you were born, you have had on your mind one thing, and that is self-love. Okay? Why did the baby cry? Self-love. Okay? Why are the first words me and no? Self-love. Right? Why is kindergarten basically a repeat curriculum of share? <laughs> because of self-love. Okay? Fast forward into your adulthood. You're still prone and regular and an expert at self-love. Okay? Much of our depression, our loathing, our deep internal struggles is because we've perverted self-love, okay? We've continued to heighten the value of self over everything else, and the world screams at us, you cannot live a healthy, God-honoring life by, by elevating self over others, and we continue to be fed the lie from the world, keep elevating, and it's just this battle, this cycle, and it's... It's catastrophic, right? By default, you love yourself, okay? 
Now listen, we're wounded often, severely broken by others and ourselves, and so these things get really convoluted and messed up. But the clarity that Scripture has here is that there's an assumption of self-love. There's an assumption of self-interest. And Paul doesn't say, stop ever looking to your own interests. That's not what he says, okay? So you can take this to a perverted other direction where you say, I'm not going to do anything for myself and only do things for others, and you spiral downward into unhealth and mess and brokenness to the point where you can't help anybody else because you're not even feeding yourself, right? None of us go to that distance, but that's, what, that's not what Scripture would lead us to. Scripture would lead us to just look at the way you love yourself and love others a little more than that, right? That's, that's it. That's the simple process, right? So we don't have to pound the drum that the world around us pounds, which is you better spend a good couple months or maybe a few years, you know, find yourself, love yourself, define yourself, figure yourself out. You've been doing that your whole life, right? Learn that that's your default and start to walk into considering others in addition to and even more than, right? Which is a slow, long, arduous process. So that's just this, this small little clarification. I, 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 that's a little funky because of how our world communicates, but this isn't a call to never love self, right? Like, you're doing that. That's an assumed reality. The call is to look at that and go, how can I do that to others, <laughs> right? The good old golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you, right? So I want to give some really practical things here about what it looks like to have the interests of others in mind, okay? So number one, this is really practical, and number two, this is going to drive us into the ground. <laughs> this is going to be hard, but we need to go there. So here's what it looks like to put others' interests before yourself. When someone has a need that you can meet, then the call is to set aside your own need for a time and to help meet their need instead, right? It means to set aside our time and to give of ourself that the need of another might be fulfilled. That's putting their interests before you. To take that to another, another level, we need to consider how we've turned our own wants into needs and start to work them backwards, okay? You have wants in your life that you're so used to having that you now consider them needs. Right? On 9-11, I was reading through uh, the White House press secretary's timeline of everything that happened on that day. And he was talking about pagers and flip phones. And he was in charge of White House press that day. And he did a bang up job, right? He made it, he figured it out with a pager and a flip phone. I want particular kinds of experiences. I pursue particular kinds of experiences. I get used to particular kinds of experiences. They turn into needs. I need to consider some of the things that I view as needs and dial them back, okay? So that, why? So that I might be able to bring fulfillment to the actual needs of others, right? 
Just think about food. Guilty. Ready? Here we go. Just think about what I eat. Right? Like, I love my local St. Pete restaurants. I love my organic produce and my organic meat. I am to the point where I see them as needs. And others do not have enough food to eat this week in my own city. Maybe I ought to dial my needs back that I might have some to share with those who have real needs. Does that make sense? This is an important evaluation, right? Because we are, Jason touched on this several weeks ago, we are sitting in the midst of one of the most abundant, prosperous times that the globe has ever seen, and we are sitting in the most abundant, prosperous country in the midst of the most abundant, prosperous times in the history of the globe, right? So we must consider, what do I call need that is really want? And how can I start to choose differently for the sake of providing for other people's needs, right? That was number one. How are we doing? This is painful. Here's another way that we can look to the interests of others rather than ourselves. This has to do with temptation and sin, right? Because people are tempted in different ways than you're tempted, right? People are prone to sin in different ways that you're probably victorious in, that your, your struggle is less significant in, right? And so when we encounter that type of an environment, it is upon us to consider the needs of that other person over our own self, to seek to understand that they are tempted and might be tempted in different ways than we are, and to remember our own temptation, to understand that just because they're tempted this way and I'm tempted this way doesn't mean that I'm a better person than them, or because they sin that way and I sin this way that I'm a better person than them because my sins are smaller and lesser, right? No, they're not. They're equally in need of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, when we consider that reality in the, in the life of another person, it leads us to prayer and sympathy and advocacy for them, right? To pray that God would help them as they're facing temptation. To be sympathetic and go, man, I know where my struggle is and that's their struggle. I can see how hard that would be. And then to begin to advocate for them, to cheer them on in their battle against their own temptations, the same way you wish they would cheer you on in your battle against yours to seek to help them as a fellow sinner by offering your ear as a place of confession, a safe place of confession, to offer your shoulder as a place for them to cry, to offer your arm as strength when they are weak, and to offer your heart to them in prayer. And we do this all free from self-righteous shaming. That's what it means to look to the interests of others. Time to hit me where it counts. Consider others as greater than yourself when you have an opinion. <sighs> Jesus, help me. Because we're full of them, and they're strong. And we can hit caps lock, and write a paragraph, and hit send, and boom, they're out there. Right? On whatever media we choose and then we'll defend them and we'll back anybody back into a corner who doesn't have them and we'll tear them to shreds because ours is based on more fact or better realities and so when we have an opinion in order to consider others 
over ourselves, we ought not just spout out our opinion constantly without arrest to everyone. That when we have an opinion, we ought to listen to others. Listen to ask them more about their separate and different conviction or opinion. To discover how it formed. To discover where it took root and why it's grown. Because someone could actually have a different view and start at the same place you started. And you start to find commonality when you discover the formation of these things. When we have a differing opinion, to consider the other over ourselves would mean to ask about it, to find out about where it began and to consider it, to really consider an opposing and differing view. And probably the most important step of this whole thing is to humanize the one who has that other opinion. Because our propensity, when we form our own convictions, is to look at anybody who has an opposite one as a demon, as evil. Not just simply wrong, right? But as gross and disgusting and not worth our time. And so we must humanize them. We must recognize they've got flesh and blood and a heart and lungs and a history and a past and a family and a future and hope and fears and wounds and weaknesses. They've got all those things just like me and that has so much to do with where they stand on this thing. Right? This is basically impossible in our current environment, right? Because it's our job to speak first and to speak loudest. That's, that's the world we find ourselves in, right? Might I encourage you toward a season of zipping the lip? Right? No one is ever changed by being yelled at by being pushed into, right? By being shamed or manipulated. It's never happened. That's how you get unwilling rebels. <laughs> right? Man, this hurts. When you have a desire consider and self-control to set aside that desire for the sake of another. When you're too tired to be there for someone or to help them or I just can't deal with <laughs> right now, right? Consider quietly, concentrate deeply on what it looks like for others to endure you when you're so difficult. when you're annoyed, when you want to gossip, or even when you're right, and it's actually true that you are right, okay? Like on that one occasion a year, okay? On that moment, even then, still consider the other above yourself. Holy cow. How hard are these things? And listen, most of the time, this is the reality. 
your selfishness and the realization of it will happen after the moment, okay? This is human reality, right? We don't recognize, realize, and weigh the heaviness of a situation until it's in our rearview mirror. And we look back and we go, oh my gosh, what a, I was, right? Listen, that is a tender, whispered moment that the Holy Spirit would like to lead you in so that you can about face and go and have a conversation. Okay? And listen, you want to shine like stars in the universe? Go apologize after you did something bad, after you were selfish. Number one, people fall off their seat when they hear you. Wait a minute, what? Right? Number two, you'll give them that lingering after effect that's the opposite of what had happened when you were selfish. They'll start to go, wait a minute. How does somebody own that mistake? How would somebody come back to me and say, I wronged you? Right? A lot of our world doesn't even have category for that anymore because we're so unused to it. So take that moment. Let that conviction sink in and then go back and own it. Right? Go apologize for it. Go and say, listen, I... I said a million words and listened to three, and it should have been the other way, right? I selfishly considered my need over yours. That's why I said I can't deal with you right now because I think I'm more valuable than you are, and Jesus would show me that you're more valuable than me. Own that. Move into that. We can do that everywhere. We can do that in the workplace, in the classroom. We can do it in public, in relationships. Certainly, we can do it in our hearts before God. We can own these selfish moments. And here's the heavy reality of selfishness, is that it does either one or two things. It either increases or it decreases, right? Selfishness is a self-feeding impulse or a self-starving battle. There's no neutrality. You can't make friends with selfishness and think it's just going to sit there dormant, right? When you make friends with it, it grows. It's that boa constrictor that just keeps eating and keeps eating, keeps getting bigger, keeps getting bigger, and eventually it just strangles you out. So, we have the example of Jesus. And we must take measure of this reality that we do not live the way that Jesus lived. And like I said at the beginning, this entire week of confronting this passage and this reality of others over self has had a profound impact on my own life. There were two different moments this week where God graciously held a mirror up to my face and said, son, your selfishness is grotesque, right? I'm in my late 30s. I've been ministering and teaching God's word to other people since I was a teenager. I've been reading and studying and digging into the life of Jesus now for two decades, and I'm insanely selfish. It's beyond my own imagination. I, like, I nearly had a fight with a human being this week, right? That's how selfish I was, to the point where I had to stop, take a deep breath, and realize my heart was going 188 beats per minute because I was so self-righteous in how I viewed a situation. 
right? That was my reality this week. And I, I stared in the face and I just went, holy moly. God, I have so far to go. I have so far to go. And that's why it's absolutely essential that we understand that Jesus is more than just simply our example, okay? If all Jesus is is an example of how to do selflessness right, then we will live crushed under the weight of that reality, okay? Jesus is far more than our perfect example. That is glorious and it's unbelievable that he lowered himself like he did to be our example, but look, look further in verse 8, it says this, that he, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what is Jesus in addition to example? Jesus is substitute. Jesus' death on the cross was the only possible way for me to be liberated from all of the weight of guilt that I feel right now after talking about how selfish I am. If Jesus is just my example, then I'm going to walk in this weight of condemnation for all of my life because I will never be selfless enough like him. But when I see that his selflessness had a point and that point was the cross, and that cross was him in my place, where I should have died in my selfishness, he died in his perfection. How is it possible for me to be liberated? It's possible for me to be liberated because Jesus took all of the wrath that is due me for my selfishness, and he took it on himself. That's Jesus Christ as substitute. So if Jesus is just example, I'm crushed. But with Jesus as substitute, I'm liberated, right? And this is one of the most significant realities of Christianity, right? Like all other religions say something to the effect of follow me and become better, right? Do this and you will make God happy. I've heard a message from God. He says live like this, so we better get on with it, right? Or separate yourself enough from the needs of this world and find a, a, a place of nirvana so where you're separate, like pursue the impossible and just get to it yourself. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is Jesus did it perfectly for you in your place. In your place, he was selfless. In your place, he considered the needs of others. In your place, he looked at the struggle of others and he took it on himself. In your place, he valued others as more significant than himself. In your place, he asked questions. He dug into conversations. He did not condemn the ones who were sinful, but instead set them free. In your place, he lived this perfect, selfless life that honored God and put others before himself in your place. And when we get this truth, like when this really sinks in and it finds a permanent home in our hearts, then we're able to look out at the world around us. Finally, clearly, humbly, we're able to say, listen, nothing in me has merited this favorable look from my God. Nothing in me deserved to have Jesus descend from heaven and come to earth and die on a cross in my place. Nothing in me merited that. I didn't earn that. I didn't get my life figured out and then Jesus came and saved me. 
right? Take the picture of a flood. I didn't figure out how to climb myself to the third floor and get out the window so I could jump in the boat so he could take me away to safety. No, I was drowning in the freaking basement with no hope. It was black and dark. And Jesus dove in. I didn't do a thing. He came and he rescued me. And when I realize that, I can look at the world and go, They is me, I is they, we, holy moly, we, all prone to this selfishness, all left to this internal deep struggle, all of us needing this reality to be given to us because we cannot earn it for ourselves. And that's what leads us to consideration of others who are not like me over the comfort of those who are like me. Because Jesus considered the least, so can I. Because I realize that I am the least. Because Jesus considered the outcast, so can I. Because I am the outcast. Right? Because Jesus considered those who could not do for themselves I realize I can consider those who cannot do for themselves because that's me. This substitute brings us into this experience of the grace of God where we realize, I don't deserve this. And then I can look at a world and I can go, and they don't deserve it. And that's exactly why I'm going to give it to them. That's exactly why I'm going to accept them with their skin knees and their black eye. That's exactly why I'm going to accept them with their different belief system and their strange history. That's exactly why I'm going to accept them when their skin color is different than me or their political affiliation is different than me. That's exactly why I'm going to accept them when their opinions are strong and completely the opposite of mine. That's exactly why I'm going to serve and lower and humble myself because that's what Jesus did for me in my place. I didn't deserve it, and he did it. And no one will ever deserve it, but will do it. Because Christ did it for us. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 says it beautifully. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. With Christ as our substitute, we are thrust into position of all of humanity. And that is, I am in desperate need of someone to look at me with compassion and to consider me in my weakness and to love me in my unloveliness. This is only possible with Christ as substitute. And we're thrust into this reality with Christ as power. Finally, Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. Jesus entered humanity. He took on flesh and blood. Always was God, became a man. Continued as perfectly God and perfectly man with his life and ministry here on earth. He went to the cross as your substitute. Because your selfishness deserved whipping. Your selfishness deserved ostracizing. Your selfishness, my selfishness, deserved to be openly shamed. 
And where did that go? That went on Jesus. And because Jesus willingly took our place on the cross, he was glorified and lifted higher than any being has ever been lifted and given a name that is higher than every other name. That at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. One day in the future, it will be unmistakable that he is Lord. And every human from every tribe and every tongue and every language, from every place on earth, from every period in history, will all confess there is none like you, Jesus. Christ has been raised to that reality and the same reality, the same power, the same resurrection that brought him up out of the grave that God blessed him with and pulled him out of the tomb, that same power, the power of God's spirit is alive in us. That's why Christ as power moves us toward this consideration of others and this investment of others and this value of others over the self because Jesus actually right now currently resides in heaven and desires to live out his ethic, his selflessness, his God-honoring life through us as his newborn people. So in you, if you're a Christian, accepting that Jesus died to take away your sin, you're also believing that Jesus' life is infused into your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is mysterious and crazy and undeserved still, and yet you're able, with a new ability, to consider others as higher than yourself, to look to the interests of others rather than only your own interests, because Jesus actually wants to do that through you. He's urging inside of you that you would live out that kind of a life. And that pushes us into a, a totally different type of living. Our normal default cultural setting is self. Look to self, consider self, value self, elevate self, submit to self only, right? Consider self right only. That's default, that's normal, and is programmed and reinforced and, and, and reverberated through our whole culture. And there's an opposing power inside your heart by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that says, Look at the world. Consider them better than yourself. Consider others. Hear their story. Dig into their history. Learn what makes them tick. Serve them so that they might be better. Put aside your own wants and your own needs that you might serve theirs. Even when you're right, move into the space with them like Jesus moved into the space with you and me. He was right and he came here. He moved in. He came close. The reality of this power is earth shattering. And so what it looks like, what it might look like for a church that values others is that it would be felt, right? I mean, you can equate this to a customer service experience. You know the difference when you walk into a place that values you. You know it, right? It feels different. Unfortunately, the way our world works, you have to pay for it. So the more you pay, the better you're treated. The less you pay, the right? That's just the reality. Jesus wants to establish a community of people that require no payment, no credit, no merit for those to walk in and be of utmost value immediately. No matter what they look like. No matter what they believe no matter where they've been or where they are now, no matter that differing opinion, that party affiliation, that skin color, that socioeconomic level, that job or no job status, immediately valued others 
over self. That changes everything, right? It's one of the reasons we want to talk honestly and openly about our own struggles here, right? That's why we want to put out there that, that we're a mess, hopefully looking a little bit more like Jesus by the time we die, <laughs> right? And welcoming those who might see things different, might even believe things different, might even be wrestling with Jesus in different ways. Invite them in and dig in and invest and find out who are they? How can they be served by me? Right? It's a long road, for sure. It's one that we have to have a substitute for because we will keep fumbling our way through it. But it is an aspirational value that I believe there's an element of here, and I believe when it blossoms, man, glory. Glory for Jesus as he makes us those people. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your grace. It's hard to look at and evaluate ourselves and to consider how selfish we are. God, often we, we move into a space of shame. We think, man, I should be better. I should be different. I should have progressed farther. I should be nicer or more understanding or more forgiving. So today, God, we do. We want to come face to face with the reality of our selfishness, but even more than that, we need to come face to face with our substitute, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you're perfect. Thank you that Jesus in his example is perfect. And thank you that more than an example, he's our substitute. That he stood in our place condemned for my selfishness. It wasn't his selfish, selfishness. He's completely selfless. Yet he stood condemned in place of me. Jesus, transform our hearts by this truth and this reality. We need it so that we might be the kind of people who interact with this world in a selfless manner. It is not possible without your work and without your power. So we pray, please make it a reality here amongst us and pull us to a greater worship of Jesus because we see his example, his substitute, and his power. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.